Sometimes when I come here and I see the kids playing, one part of me wants to say, oh my God, where's the bubble at that I can put you in? in this community so that you're not poisoned to death. Keeps raining all the time. If they put another plant in Chester, we will tear it down. Bring it down. There's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather. Covanta has become our China. You know, facilities in America now are having to realize and accept the trash that we are producing in this country. And it's, it's a wake-up call for many municipalities throughout this country. When I stand out on a bus stop, like I stand up on a bus stop for summer camp, these the trucks they come by and it smell and I have to back I have to back up back away because of the smell is too strong. In Western countries, it's typically held that the purpose of government is to protect the people that live within it. Whether they're protecting our lives, our rights, or our opinions, a democratic government is supposed to be for the people, by the people. But what happens when the people running the government aren't the same people who need to be protected? In episode one, we established the fact that waste industries typically pollute in areas where the people are predominantly black. Consider this. On January 7th, 2021, the U.S. elected its 11th Black Senator to Congress. In all of U.S. history, there have only been 11 Black Senators. The people running the U.S. government are far removed from cities like Chester. And that level of representation influences policy that affects everyone. This is the tragedy of the city of Chester. Its people have endured decade after decade of mistreatment, yet not once has the government gone back and tried to address the impacts of that mistreatment. The people of Chester should have never been held captive by a corrupt political machine for 100 years. The people of color in Chester should have never been segregated and denied affordable housing. Nearly every expert and official I spoke to over the course of this podcast, regardless of which side they were on and who they represented, acknowledges that this incinerator should have never been built here. Everyone loves to mull over how tragic it is, but the second anyone tries to do something about it, the second Zulin says the incinerator needs to be shut down, it's seen as an affront on people's rights. As Strand said, whether we like it or not and regardless of how they got it, Covanta has the legal right to operate in Chester. And as long as the people that run our government continue to look like the people who run Covanta, i.e. homogeneously white, there is very little chance these laws will change. There is no beating around the bush this episode as far as describing the known struggle of protecting Chester's residents. The point of this episode is to show you how Covanta and the state justify protecting some American citizens over others. Yeah. 
I reached out to the Covana incinerator to see their take on all of this. I scheduled an interview with Paul Gilman, Covana's executive vice president of sustainability. Now, Gilman has gone on record about Chester's environmental issues before. In fact, one time he even debated Zuline on a WHYY podcast. My focus for this interview, as well as this whole investigation, has been the data. All of the data that was made public to me shows that Covana on the whole is polluting more than previous owners of the incinerator, and that Chester's health has continued to decline. Since Covanta is part of the CEP, who is supposedly critical of how industrial pollution affects people's health, I wanted to ask them how they reconcile such a contradictory position. Here is a clip from our Zoom interview, after I mentioned that some of their emissions have either increased or are similar to rates in the 90s. That's really way off the mark. The amounts of emissions are way below the federal limits. They're way below the federal limits, and they've been, over the past 10 years, dramatically reduced. The one that we continue to try and drive down, but whether it's dioxin or mercury or socks, you know, those are sulfur compounds. Those are all down. So I, I just don't even know where you get a statement like that. Again, I'm, I'm trying to be fair. And, and the ones that... Well, you are, need to be accurate. For starters, Gilman completely rejects the data I'm using. He even doubles down and says that all of their emissions have steadily decreased. At one point, another Covana rep who sat in on the interview even chimed in with data contradictory to mine, reading from an unpublicized data set showing emissions of particulate matter, which is a harmful air pollutant. He read me the number of emissions from 2007 and 2018, indicating that there was a decrease over time. This contradicts the state's data set, which indicates an increase in emissions, as particulate matter in 2007 was 21.9 tons, and in 2018, it was 26 tons. In fact, a year prior, in 2017, their emissions were 42 tons, almost double that of 2007. Depending on what set of data you're looking at and who was showing it to you, Covana's yearly emissions can change entirely. Just as a side note on Covana's particulate matter emissions, since 2010, Covana's emissions of particulate matter have gradually decreased, and while the facility still emits more of it than any other incinerator in the country, that trend should be noted. This prior example is mainly just to outline the true nature of how untransparent and shifting monitoring data is in reality. With that being said, let me be clear. All the emissions data I've cited in this interview and subsequently in this podcast is self-reported by Covanta to the state of Pennsylvania. If the data I'm using is wrong, then Covana sent falsified numbers to state regulators. The fact that they read me contradictory data was incredibly concerning, because frankly, what are citizens supposed to trust about what's reportedly coming out of these facilities? I reached out to the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, or the DEP, immediately after this interview and reported the discrepancy to state regulators. While I was not allowed to record this Zoom meeting, the DEP's air quality compliance chief said that she met with a team from Covanta and made it clear that the public emissions data I've been citing is correct. They denied to make a determination on the trends. Perhaps it's my youthful naivety, 
but I thought the head of sustainability for a billion-dollar corporation that frames itself as an eco-friendly and quote-unquote good neighbor would have a better response to the question, why are some of your emissions increasing, than just denial and a scoff. Since we couldn't agree on my data for the interview, I switched over to my questions about a 2018 sustainability report Covana had sent me prior to the interview. In this document, titled the Covana-Delaware Valley 2018 Facility Performance, there were four pie charts breaking down local emissions by pollutant. So let's take a look at one of them. The first chart breaks down emissions of what's called NOx, a nitrogen-based pollutant that can cause respiratory damage. According to the report, Covana Chester only accounts for 10% of local emissions. This is compared to emissions from the Philadelphia airport, cars and trucks, houses, and a couple of other sources. And while if we're talking about local Chester emissions, then 10% is substantial, but it wouldn't really make Covana look like the main polluter in the area. But then you stop and read the fine print, as you always should. By quote-unquote local emissions, they don't mean the city of Chester. They mean all of Delaware County. For context, Delaware County is the fifth highest populated in the state and is 38 times larger than the city of Chester itself. The county is home to over half a million people. This means that the Covana plant accounts for 10% of all of the NOx pollution in the entire county. The only lone facility that outpollutes Covanta is the Philadelphia International Airport. I can't emphasize enough how insanely high that number is. If the incinerator is 10% of the entire county's NOx pollution, then imagine what percent it is for the city of Chester. When I pointed this out to Gilman, this is how he responded. Well, you know, obviously the point of this is that if you worry about NOx and you worry about health effects associated with it, you don't just look at a single facility. You want to look at the NOx that people are exposed to. And this is a representation of the graphical representation of all the different sources of NOx that people are exposed to. And by far the largest contributor are the so-called mobile sources. You can talk about the stationary sources, but for NOx, it's the perfect example of where our transportation system is the way that people are exposed to large amounts of NOx. And yes, the facility contributes about 10% to the area's NOx generation. You have to also, you know, if you get terribly sophisticated about this, you begin to ask yourself, well, what about NOx emissions from surrounding areas as well? But, but for purposes of this comparison, the facility contributes about 10% mobile sources far more. So if you're going to have a discussion about what can we do to improve NOx, certainly we're focused, as I told you, you know, just a little a few minutes ago, we're starting an effort to try and see if there's some technology we can employ that will further reduce NOx. We've been successful in doing that with other combustion technologies that we operate. But you need to have a dialogue with a broad set of participants about how do we reduce NOx. 
I understand why he, as an active PR, is making this claim, but understand that it is irrelevant to the question. I've made it clear in both the interview and in the podcast that this investigation is not about pinning down one facility as the sole cause of the health problems in the area. But what's on display here is Covana's knee-jerk reaction to realizing they could be contributing to the problem. Instead of changing, they start blaming. For you to suggest that all the other sources, they don't really count. We only think that the NOx that comes from your facility is the facility that matters, not the 90% of the rest of the NOx in the area. That's, that's somehow okay NOx. Yes, we all agree. Automobiles contribute to pollution. But that's just simply not the point of this question. The question is, regardless of what happens with cars, what are you doing to curtail your emissions, which are by no means insignificant? While Covanta has reported to me that they have tried to gradually decrease their NOx emissions over the past several years, such declines have not been substantial, and have only gotten the pollutant to be 10% of what the whole county's levels are. While we're on the point about automobiles, every city has them. Not every city has asthma rates as high as Chester, and not every city has Covanta, along with a litany of other waste facilities. The notion that automobiles alone are causing Chester's unique health problems is unfounded. While all these rhetorical antics seem reprehensible, there is little you can do to indict the incinerator. Despite all the misleading statistics and blatant diversions, all of Covana's emissions are completely legal. That same sustainability report that showed Covana contributing 10% of the county's local NOx emissions has another chart. This chart indicates how far below the state-permitted level Covana is emitting. For NOx, it shows that Covana is emitting 42% below the state-permitted level. This means that Covana could nearly double its emission of NOx, totaling a fifth of the entire county's emissions, and it would be completely legal. This is the core of the issue. Zulin and Strand can point out that the incinerator is burning more than they were 20-some years ago, but that doesn't mean Covana is anywhere near their legal limit. They're able to come off as quote-unquote good neighbors because they are well below limits that are absurdly high. Since the facility is in legal compliance, Gilman argues their emissions are safe. But what I found is the big disconnect in the debate between activists and waste facilities is this. Compliance doesn't mean safety. This is a concern Dante Swinton, the environmental researcher and activist from Baltimore, has held for a while now. And one of the things I always like to say, because that's the argument they always make, is that they're like, oh, you know, we're in compliance, we're in compliance. Compliance doesn't mean safety. I think... Somehow along the way, they tried to change the dictionary definitions and the source connections and what have you. But compliance doesn't mean safety. It just means this is what level the EPA accepts for you to die a little slower uh, from these facilities. Like they still have mercury standards uh, that they can only surpass. But even if they hit 20% of that, or rather 80% below that uh, standard, that's still 20% of that mercury that's still getting out there that's still going to cause harm. It doesn't matter that you're under, that. that's just bull. I mean, like, no physician's going to be like, oh, man, well, instead of 10 pounds of mercury, you got subjected to two pounds, but, I mean, you'll be fine. <laughs> like, there's, 
there was a British Medical Journal study in 2015 that was actually like a compilation of about 120 studies across the world that said even one day of exposure to nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, or particular matter would increase your lifetime risk of heart disease, stroke, or chronic respiratory disease. And, and that's, that's just one day. So you have people like Dante, who thinks that just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right and doesn't mean it's safe. Then you have people like Reverend Strand. As I mentioned in the last episode, I asked Reverend Strand for the DEP report which greenlighted Philly's recyclables to be burned in Chester. He couldn't find it, and so I asked the DEP for it. They didn't find it either, only saying that this report has been brought up before at CEP meetings and must be the result of confusion. When I reported this back to Strand, he responded with two sentences. Quote, Did you speak with the air quality program manager at the DEP? The DEP confirmed that they were within permit limits. End quote. This is the danger in thinking that compliance means safety. Reverend Strand, Chester's environmental vanguard, took a report saying that Covana can burn Philly's plastics while still being within its permitted limits and used it to deem the action safe. He then took this opinion and wrote a letter to the Philadelphia City Council on behalf of Chester supporting the deal. This response comes again to the paradox that is the Chester Environmental Partnership. The CEP ensures that facilities like Covana are in legal compliance, yet also posts official studies on their website linking Chester's poor health to facility emissions. Clearly then, the CEP should understand that facilities don't need to be breaking the law to be poisoning people. Yet, for whatever reason, these fundamental principles seem to fly out the window when big decisions like this one come into play, and Strand needs to decide, does compliance really mean that people will be safe? Circle's Mike Ewall also shares his concern about state-permitted levels, but he even offered an explanation. The limits are not based on health and safety at all. They're technology-based standards based on what this technology was able to do back when it was first permitted almost 30 years ago. It's also scalable to size. So if you had an incinerator that burns 1,000 tons per day compared to this one that can burn 3,500 tons per day, it would have limits that are less than a third of what this one actually has. But since they burn more waste, they're allowed to put more out. So it's scale by size. It's not scale by, this is as much poison as this community can take. Therefore, this is your limit. Nothing to do with that. According to Mike, these permitted levels are not based on health and safety, but rather technology. A factoid that's been spread throughout this podcast is that the Covana Chester incinerator is among the largest in the country. This is true, as it takes in about 3,500 tons of waste per day, 400 tons more than the second largest incinerator, located in Florida and also operated by Covana. With a capacity this large, Mike argues the facility gets access to higher permitted levels. If this is the case, look at what that formula is causing in Chester. The incinerator is so massive that it can be a top polluter in the city by far, yet remain far below the state limit. Mike shared with me a recording of a DEP hearing for an ethanol biorefinery looking to be sited in the town of Clearfield, Pennsylvania, where a DEP official makes it clear that permits are not based on health. I think the question was, uh, what, what are the standards based on? Are they health standards or, or what? Uh, what I said was, it was a technology. The answer, the quick answer is that our evaluations are done based on technology standards, not health standards. Okay, uh, what we do, the, the underlying concept 
predominantly across the country is technology-based. What it says essentially is that uh, as older plants and older sources fall apart and become useless, are replaced, they, they need to be replaced with things that are cleaner. Uh, competition drives a lot of that. We've had a continual, more or less continual, better combustion for gas, for example. So there are a number of burner manufacturers that continually buy for the lowest emissions uh, and so on. We don't make evaluations of permits based on health standards in a direct fashion. We follow, we follow the lead of the uh, federal government on that. So here, a PADEP official admitted that the state laws which determine the quality of the air we breathe are not based mainly on health and safety. When I reached out to the DEP and asked for a clarification on this, they belittled their role in the permitting process. According to Virginia Kane, a representative of the DEP, the DEP has very little discretion in determining permitted levels of pollution. For the most part, the DEP follows criteria given to them by the federal EPA. These criteria, however, are outdated and ignore scientific recommendations. Dr. Marilyn Howarth explains. There are several regulations, and, and one in particular that's relevant to Chester is the Clean Air Act, the Federal Clean Air Act, had within it a piece that said that every five years, the top scientists in the country should be convened to reassess the latest research that connects health and levels of particle or levels of a particular chemical pollution. And so they do that. They do that for all of the criteria air pollution pollutants. But who those scientists are and who they convene and how often that is convened and whether or not their recommendation is actually adopted by the government agency, by the EPA, those are all places where politics can intervene. And we have seen in recent years that politics has intervened, whether it's been that they, they change who the scientists are on the panel so that they are really industry scientists rather than uh, more independent ones that would, on the, at least on the surface, appear to be more independent, uh, whether uh, they you know, space out, you know, sort of it's maybe not five years, but there's a delay in getting that convened and getting that done. Mm -hmm. Or once the recommendation comes out, the EPA says, no, we're not going to take that recommendation. We're going to stick with what we have. Mm -hmm. All of those things have happened. I think that that's the kind of detail that is really hard for the public to know about unless they're kind of you know, in the weeds of understanding how these things work. And so that, that's the part that really um, concerns me in terms of our regulatory approach being able to protect the public. Dr. Howarth continues to explain how the EPA ignored scientific studies in regards to one of Covana's most pertinent chemicals, particulate matter. The particulate level that was thought to be acceptable was 15 micrograms per cubic meter, and it was changed to 12 uh, a number of years ago. And the most recent scientific committee that was convened looked at the data, and they said that even at levels of five micrograms per cubic meter, they could see health effects. And so what they were suggesting by that is that there was virtually no safe level of particulates in the air. And so that was a, you know, it wasn't just that 12 wasn't safe and that maybe they should move it to 10 or 11. It was, wow, we could really see even as low as five, there are, there are health effects. 
And they made the recommendation to the EPA that the the level of, of 12 be lowered, and the EPA chose to keep it at 12. So there was no lowering uh, whatsoever. And um, that, to me, is not a science-based decision. Since the EPA isn't a purely science-based organization, states like PA are following emission standards that aren't necessarily reflective of what's healthy for Americans. These permitted levels recommended by the Clean Air Act are signed off by whoever is running the organization politically. Not only are health standards being evaded at the federal level, it's also happening at the state level. Levels for large facilities, such as the one in Chester, are based off of what the best available technology exists that can lower emissions. So instead of basing the number of permissible emissions on what's safe for people to breathe given the conditions in that area, the DEP bases it off of how far technology has progressed in that field. So obviously, this policy is far more forgiving for companies than it is for the people who will need to breathe in the pollution. So yes, health and safety is not first and foremost in the permitting process. Unfortunately, this isn't the only area where the state has shrugged off responsibility. I asked the DEP about Circle's lawsuit from the 90s that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. As a refresher, Circle sued the DEP for granting too many permits in one area with so many people of color. Even though the case was dropped, I asked them what changes they made to prevent environmental injustice and unfair cumulative pollution. The short answer to that question is nothing substantive. By that I mean the DEP has granted no further discretion to critique permits if they are in places that already have a lot of polluters and or residents of color. The DEP's answer is that they created the Office of Environmental Justice, of which Reverend Strand has been a high-ranking official. This branch, however, doesn't have any discretion in permitting. The branch cannot shoot down permits for being unjust. Rather, the branch is in charge of educating communities about polluters once a permit request is made in their area. That way, citizens can speak up and cipher through these scientific reports like we did earlier. While this is certainly a good program, it's not necessarily an effective method in preventing facilities from being located in environmental justice communities. Oftentimes, once a permit request is made in a zoned area, as long as they meet the legal permitted levels, they're in the clear. The DEP argues that the entity responsible for preventing environmental justice is not them, the EPA, or the environmental justice branch, but the municipality itself. If cities change their zoning laws to prevent industries from renting land, then the facilities can never get cited in the first place. Unfortunately, this often doesn't work in practice. Cities like Chester, after a long history of fighting and activists rising to power, have been able to change their zoning laws. But if you are part of a municipality that needs that passive income and the environment isn't priority number one, chances are your leaders will let that facility in. Speaking on this point, Dr. Howarth calls for federal environmental justice legislation to provide avenues for places like Chester to remedy this clustering. Because the regulations that are set are really set based on, in large part, single industries. If you had one Covanta sitting in one place with no other industry around, what would be the safe permission to allow them to pollute? What would be a safer amount that they could pollute? And that is how the permit is written in my view. And that is not the real circumstance. There are lots of different industries that together put out a lot of pollutants that are just like 
the pollutants that Covanta puts out, for example, just because mm -hmm. you used that one. There are many other industries also polluting in that same way. And so the issue is less about the industries not meeting their permits and doing the wrong thing than the current regulations put out by the government not being protective enough to account for the many different sources of pollution that together are really what's impacting people. I think the solution for Chester is really the solution for all of our areas in the country that are considered overburdened, those environmental justice communities. The solution is a regulation that enshrines, basically a law that enshrines the right of all Americans to have a healthy and safe environment. And so a recognition that it shouldn't matter what your zip code is as to whether or not you're entitled to clean air or air that's not going to give you an excess amount of cancer or heart disease or asthma. It needs to be a federal regulation. And there are some attempts at this at the state level that are happening. Mm -hmm. But I think that uh, until we actually have a federal uh, law that actually requires regulatory agencies in their permitting process to look at what's already there, what's already being emitted, and consider that in a very quantitative way so it, it mm -hmm. can't really be a matter of judgment, uh, until we have that, Cities like Chester, unfortunately, will continue to have the overburden that they currently do. Overall, the DEP hasn't effectively adapted since Circle's Supreme Court case. And since they denied the permit in question, no precedent was made until Alexander v. Sandoval. So really, they could go about business as usual. Before Circle could find another lawsuit, Jerry Balter, the lawyer who got them there, passed away. It is the job of government to regulate industry and fill in the holes as it goes. But repeatedly throughout this story, officials are quicker to pass the buck rather than serve the people. You ask the CEP about increased emissions, and they say, go talk to Covana. You ask Covana about increased emissions, and they say, you know, we're in legal compliance and it's the other facility's fault. You ask the DEP about permitted levels, and they say it's the EPA's formula and it's the municipality's responsibility anyway. You ask other cities to take action, and they send trash from China to Chester. At any one of these levels, people in power could have stepped in to ensure that Chester's air quality is actually safe. This is the slippery slope that occurs when the people in power contrast so vehemently from the people who need protection. At its core, these institutional issues are rooted in the history of American racism. The environmental injustice in Chester is just one small cog of the centuries-old machine of anti-Black discrimination. Without more diverse political representation and more public knowledge of these issues, the American government will likely continue to kick the can of Chester's environmental problems down the road until West 3rd Street is but a ghost town. Already, the city has depopulated to 33,000 people, which is half of what it was in 1950. While the core of this issue lies in the racial question, there are also race-neutral ways that we can start to halt the pollution in Chester. If U.S. communities start to convert to what's called a zero-waste economy, we may be able to cut off the environmental side of this problem at its source. 
Meaning, if we start to change the way societies handle waste, we can start to curb our own consumption. According to Alex Danovich, the environmental consultant we spoke to in episode 3, who has dedicated his life to helping communities achieve zero waste, some U.S. communities have implemented a policy of unit pricing, where individuals get charged for how much waste they place at the curb. In some communities, unit pricing has led to a 40% reduction in waste production. Even higher rates of waste reduction are seen in households that consistently compost, nearing rates of 50-60% to decreases. Clean Air Council attorney Logan Weld also spoke to me about the need to implement what's called extended producer responsibility, otherwise known as EPR. So we as a society need to think about what comes into our cities and into our towns instead of what goes out of our towns. We need to put the door at the front and not at the back. You know, we are so free at letting plastic companies come in and just, you know, Coca-Cola made, you know, 4 million tons of of plastic, I think in 2017 or something like that, a very large number of plastic. They don't care what happens to that plastic afterwards. Think about just the empty ketchup packets that Philadelphians take every single day. I bet it's, you know, they mindlessly reach in and grab a bunch of packs. They put it in their bag or the clerk will mindlessly grab a pack, a bunch of packs, throw it in their bag. They will then throw out a lot of that ketchup. Let's say 50% of the bags they get. We now have this wasted pack of ketchup that took resources to make, took resources to transport. The McDonald's or or wherever passed that cost onto the consumer. So the consumer's paying for it. The taxpayer is then paying for it by transporting that out into the landfill. Then it's creating methane gas in the landfill. We have just created this crazy system that if you just sat down and sketched it out, you would say, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this to our society? I believe that EPR will be an extremely strong legal tool for groups to be able to use to go after plastic manufacturers. So there is precedent for it. There were companies that made lead paint. You're, everyone's familiar with lead paint and the now uh, you know pretty famous, infamous stories of, of kids eating lead paint and, and all the problems that it caused. Lead paint at the time was a very useful and beneficial product for society. We then realized all the problems that were attendant to it. And the producers of lead paint had to then go through a lot of lawsuits. And, you know, EPR is a tool, I think, that can be used just like lead paint and the producers of lead paint for plastic pollution. We are literally letting all these companies off the hook. They are creating products that are meant to be single throwaway products and they don't care about the consequences for communities. So why is Coca-Cola able to produce 4 million tons of of plastic and not have to deal with the ramifications from that? So so the bottom line is I think EPR should and very well may be used against some of these plastic manufacturers for the tremendous amount of burden. So you'd have to link it really to what the harm is. And the harm is that these Philadelphia Chester, you know, these municipalities are now dealing with just billions and billions of tons of plastic waste um, that we're creating. Under EPR-type regulations, companies like Coca-Cola and Nestle would have financial incentives to curb the amount of plastic they produce. Lesser demand for plastic means lesser reliance on natural gas to produce it, as well as less plastic being burned in incinerators. Remember, these incinerators are in the waste disposal business, not the energy business. If their waste stream is reduced by half, 
Yes, they will be burning less, but they may also reconsider sticking around. Waste and plastic incineration is not renewable and is not part of a sustainable future. If we as individuals and smaller communities begin to implement zero-waste economies, we can do what National Sword did and help cut these polluting industries off at the source. But until then, Chester's future lies where it's always been, in the hands of its activists. Both Strand and Zuline are uniquely equipped to fight the issues outlined in this podcast, but both are limited in their strategies. Reverend Strand's status position is effective in maintaining strong communication with local leaders and warding off additional polluters, but falls short of challenging unjust laws. Zuline is equipped to work outside of state institutions, protesting higher emissions, calling out unjust laws, organizing lawsuits, but often falls short of compromise. Regardless, it is unfair to place the responsibility to educate and change the public strictly on these activists. This is work that, had society been structured fairly, they wouldn't do at all. It's an unfair question, and it's an unfair question to put on residents. We are not trash managers of the world. All we want to do is live. All we want our children to be able to do is to live, grow up safely, and be able to survive and prosper in this world. That is my role as a resident. They have degreed people, they have people that sit in high places and make big decisions over other people's lives. It's not my position as somebody who lives in in the city of Chester to determine what city of Philadelphia does with their recyclables. Figure it out. But as with all things, people always take the easy way out and they go where they think the path of least resistance is. And that is where the racism comes in at. Oh, I got a brilliant idea. Let's send it to Chester. They're a shithole community. Who cares? Well, the people of Chester care. We care. We care. And you ought to do better. I can give you a whole list of what people need to do to get down to zero waste. Do away with single-use products, okay? That's not my job. This is not my industry. My industry is to make sure that that little boy right there has the ability to grow up and not be poisoned to death. That is the role of his mother, to make sure he is a viable life. While the situation may look bleak, don't count Chester out. People of color in this city have survived centuries of overt racism and corporate exploitation. In the face of all this oppression, Chester is not powerless. It's politics and power, and or who is viewed as having the power, okay? When you are viewed as being powerless, how well will people listen to you? And that's part of the, the problem. You know, how people view communities like Chester. That's part of the problem, but it can also be part of the solution. If I thought we was powerless, you know, I would be just as victimized as everybody else. I don't believe in that shit. I believe that every person matters. And 
if they don't ma matter in America, then um, we need to challenge America's creed, okay? Power is not incumbent to a title or a position. It resides within you. As Zulene begins to rebuild Circle, ask yourself, what will you do with yours? What will you do to ensure America's next generation grows up with the right to breathe untarnished air? Because Chester is not alone. There are communities just like it across the country battling environmental injustice. In fact, Covana operates another large incinerator just 20 miles from Chester, just over the river in the city of Camden, New Jersey. This problem is widespread, with, as an example, the small state of Massachusetts having over 100 environmental justice communities by itself. Throughout history, these communities have been marked not as American, but as other. They are the other that corrupt politicians exploited for centuries. They are the other that current politicians are okay with sending their trash to. They lack so much representation in government that these places who make up so much of America's essential workforce have largely been warehoused and forgotten. If you're someone like me, you've lived your whole life not having to think about what happens after you throw something in the trash can. You throw it in, forget about it, and move on with your life. But when you look at what that mentality is doing to communities like Chester, you start to realize that there is no such thing as free lunch, even when you're throwing it away. Waste has to go somewhere, and if you are able to turn a blind eye as to where it goes, then be honest and ask yourself, what makes you different than the people we've discussed on this podcast who have exploited Chester time after time again without regard for what's being left? The permission you give yourself to neglect that candy wrapper after you throw it away is no different than the state permitting Covanta to burn away their trash problem. Will you resign yourself to a life where trash continues to be out of sight, out of mind, or will you commit to holding yourself accountable for how you produce waste? I know that this podcast has just piled one problem on top of another, and together they may seem insurmountable, but don't let that discouragement foster despair. The more I researched for this investigation, the more I realized that I directly contributed to the problems I was reading about. And yes, for someone who didn't even know the problem existed beforehand, that sucks. But it's a small and preliminary cost to pay for the privilege we've been afforded. I grew up my whole life not just sending my trash to Chester, but also thinking that the city and its residents were somehow different than me and my neighbors. It was this subconscious mindset planted in me way back during those summers driving across that bridge. My mother had worked in Chester's hospital for most of her life, and she saw the horrific consequences of structural inequality rush through those emergency room doors on a stretcher every night. And she relayed those fears into me to try and keep me safe from it all. But those fears are just fears, and if we confront them head on, they shatter. You've been in this community now for about an hour. I watched you walk down, okay? And all of those fears that your mother put in your brain, I didn't see no apprehension about you being here. You weren't sitting up in the car locked up waiting for a phone call, afraid to get out of the car. If you walk through this community, you will find that people are very friendly. It's not uncommon for them to speak to you. Hey, good morning, afternoon, how are you? That's not uncommon. So 
we are no different because we're black than anybody else. We're sitting here with a mother of eight children. Her desires for her children were as equally as great as the aspirations that your mother had for you. That's it, period, period. She as a mother is doing everything she can to make sure that her children are viable, will be successful, and will advance our nation. That's what she's doing as a mother. Start small. Start by asking the basic questions. How much waste do I produce? Where is it sent? Is it somewhere like Chester? And if so, how can I minimize my environmental impact on them? No matter where you live, there could be a Chester not far from you. So regardless of where you live and how you contribute to America's waste problem, try and find out how you can help aid local activists like Zuline, who are buckling in for a showdown over both the quality of their air and the integrity of their city. Whether it's a social media post, calling a politician, or even writing a podcast, do your part in spreading the word that wherever it may reside, Chester is rising. You know, the question is now, what can we do, okay? For people who don't live in Chester, okay? And I'm gonna say it again, everybody is accountable. If you live in Delaware County, okay, join us. You found me, I can be found, okay? Join us, I will come in any community because if you don't look, if it ain't coming to your zip code, it's coming to a zip code near you. The battle is long. Chester's not unique. It's the worst, or one of the worst, but it's happening all across the United States. But communities like this are rising up and they stand on the battlefield because we don't have a choice. And we're asking people to help us, to join us. Um, you can reach us at Chester Residence. You can go on the internet, do Chester Residence, and you'll find us. Um, you can go to entityjustice.net, and you can find us. Or I just believe, you know, this is a not an undoable situation, you know? I don't want people to feel sorry for us. I want people to help to work for us all. And it's like this, if, if we in Chester can fight, then damn it, anybody can fight anywhere, okay? The struggle for life and survival is hard, you know? You got people who work two and three jobs, you know? No paying, low paying jobs, so you primarily are trying to take care of your family. Yet, people can find the time to do what's necessary to protect their, their family. So if we can do it, anybody can do it. We're asking for help. In fact, we're not asking for help, we're demanding that you stand up for your own self. Because we stood up for a lot of people for a long time, okay? And we will continue to stand up for ourselves. But everybody in this situation is accountable, everybody played a role, and everybody can fix it. Everybody can fix it. This situation does not have to be. That's point blank, period. Drop the mic, Zara. Drop the mic. They told the mic, Ani. Told the mic. That's right. They power to the people. They power to the people.